Turn with me, if you would, this morning to the book of Psalms. We're looking at Psalm 20 this week, Psalm 21 next week, and then we'll take a one-week break before we go on with Psalm 22. So Psalm 20 and 21 really go together. If you know how they work, you know that Psalm 20 is before a battle, and Psalm 21 is after the battle is won. And as we think about battles, we understand we are in a war. You see, the kingdom of God continues to stand against the flesh, the world, and the devil. And when a particular battle in this war is apparent, perhaps we can learn from the example of David and the Israelites, who with this liturgical poem, apparently at least once, if not many times, approached war with God's word. Follow along as I read first what the people say, then what the king, King David, said as he went into battle, and finally the last verse again, the people together crying out to the Lord. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. As we consider these words, let us look to the Lord briefly in prayer. Father, may these words that you have written by your spirit through the hand of David your servant. May they impact us because we have ears to hear them and hearts to understand them. May we, Lord, apply these words to our lives as we seek by your spirit to be strengthened and encouraged in the battles that we face. And Father, may we this morning, with believing hearts, seek to serve you, seek to be kind to others, and seek in this battle to fight, and to stand according to your power and your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are a general getting ready for battle, and the day of the battle has arrived and the time is quickly coming, what are you expected to do? Well, of course, you might survey the field. And the plans that you have, you might check in with the logistics and make sure that all of the soldiers are well prepared and well provisioned and provided for. You might check with your commanders and your inner circle to make sure that everyone is on the same page. In the times of General Washington, he would have ridden in front of the troops to encourage them to go out and fight the battle. During the time of the American Civil War, the generals often... Many of them popular with their soldiers would too. They too would ride the front lines and encourage them, sometimes to great fanfare and shouts of huzzah or other things. In modern war, 
They don't ride horses anymore. And of course, on the battlefield, they may not be in the tank. They may be somewhere far from the front lines. But if not in appearance, then important it must be to address the troops and provide them by some means, some encouragement and some strength that the battle is coming and that we indeed have the strength and the will to prevail. What about the Christian fighting the battle of the war around us? Yes, we look to see that we're provided for, that we're seeking God's word, and we are filled with God's spirit, and we are using the gifts that he has given us, and all of those things. But for the Christian, the most important thing is to appeal to the real commander-in-chief, the God, as this scripture describes, of the holy heavens. This is what takes place in this passage As the people first give their prayer for the king, King David in this case, but we'll see that it applies even much further than that. And then the king gives his prayers, the prayer of the king, particularly starting in verse 6 through 8. And then, of course, there's the great refrain, God save the king. But first of all, the prayer for the king. You see, this is interesting You see all these words, may this happen, may that happen. In fact, in some ways, you could even describe this particular tense of the verb to say this will happen. There is a confidence that is here. And this confidence is, first of all, placed in the covenant God. Notice here the very first three words is may the Lord or the Lord will. And, of course, again, this is the name for Yahweh or Jehovah, as so often occurs in the Psalms. This is the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush when he said, If the people ask who sent you, tell them that I am sent you. That's the word Jehovah or Yahweh. This is the God of the covenant people Israel and the people that would trust in him and his provision of a savior. And the people say... To the king, assumedly, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. There is is confidence here that God will respond to the king. When the king lifts up his request in the day of the battle, the day of distress, the day of some kind of trouble, God will answer. You see, there are those in the world who scoff at that idea that God answers. But here is the scripture that says God will answer. The second phrase says much the same thing. God will protect you. That is the name of the God of Jacob will protect you. Again, this covenant God, he will protect in this sense his anointed one, his king. And it's a reminder that here the people have confidence when they go out to battle in the time of David that as David goes out to battle as someone after God's own heart, seeking to please him and seeking to lead the people, God will respond and he will protect. And then verse 2, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. The confidence in this covenant God is not just that he will answer, not just that he will provide the defense that is necessary in this battle, but that he will send the king actual help and support. And notice where this help and support comes from. 
It does not come from the war cabinet. It does not come from the gun closet. It does not come from the chariots and horses. It comes from the sanctuary. And it comes from Zion, that is, the place where the temple was and the place in the da- David's day where the tabernacle was placed and the altar had been brought, or the, uh, rather the, the Ark of the Covenant had been brought to represent God's presence. And so in essence, the call here or the understanding is that this help and support is the very presence of God coming from the tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant and the presence represented by God there in that place that God himself would be with his king and his people. This is confidence, is it not? That God will be with them, God will respond to them, God will protect them, and God will help and support them in their time of need. This is the confidence we as believers have as we fight the battles around us. But it's not just here a confidence in the covenant God for the people in David's time. David is writing as a believer who is seeking to serve God after his whole heart. And so the people say this in verse 3. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. You see, they have confidence not only in the covenant God in their day, in their context, they also are describing confidence in the faith of their king. Now, of course, we know there are times when that confidence may be misplaced because if there is, in this sense, a human king, they will fail. They will at times not place their faith in the Lord. We see that particularly as we go through the history of the kings and the chronicles And we see king after king, particularly in the northern kingdom in Israel, that failed to trust in God. In fact, more often than not, they were trusting in the nations around them to support them, trusting in their power, trusting in their influence. But in this particular case, the ideal king of Israel is the one who is trusting in God. And so therefore, as he goes into battle, the practices of this faithful king are to worship before he goes on the field. What is that king doing? As he prepares and as he seeks to rally the troops, he is out there worshiping, presenting offerings to God in humility. You see, these offerings here are the offerings of a sinner offered to a God who would forgive based on the faith of the presenter. And then the burnt offerings, again, A reminder that this whole animal with the smoke rising up to God is only acceptable if the faith of the presenter is present. And so the people say, may God remember your offerings. That is, may he cover your sin. May he present you as acceptable to lead the people on the battlefield. And may you and your hearts Faith and desires be pleasing in God's sight. So this confidence in the faith of the king is that God would remember the king's gifts. So, yes, it is 
in part a conditional confidence and condition that this king really is in faith worshiping the king of kings and God of gods who can provide for them and respond to them. But it's also a reminder that if he does offer these things in faith, then God will remember. And of course, if God remembers, then when you do go out on the battlefield, he will accomplish his holy purpose on that field. So it's to remember his gifts and receive the offerings. This idea of regard with favor your burnt offerings is actually the term to receive them. That is to understand that they are offered in faith and that they are not offered just by ritual or rote practice. Here they are offered in faith. Now, of course, there in your scriptures, you also see the word selah. I've rather ignored that in this study on the Psalms. Many people think it's a musical term to express a pause in the psalm. And what an important place for a pause to take place. Because when we understand the confidence here in the covenant God and the confidence based on the faith of the king, it's a place to ponder What are we placing our faith in? Are we coming to God even in the midst of a battle in humility or in arrogance? So the confidence is not necessarily in themselves. It's not even necessarily in their king, although here they're expressing confidence that the king really is offering these things in faith. But the confidence is in the God who remembers and the God who receives the worship offered by faith. But that's not all that the king is doing. It says here, may he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. And then the end of verse 5, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. The idea here is that God would endorse and complete his plans. When he says, may he grant your heart's desire Uh, The word desire here is supplied by our English. Here it's basically grant you the things of your heart and complete or fulfill your plans or your counsel. Of course, this must be his battle plans, don't you think? As the king's getting ready to go out and battle, he has plans put together. And if you know anything about David, you know that he had some pretty amazing and interesting and rather out-of-the-box and out-of-the-ordinary plans from time to time. Some of them seems to be uh, gained from his wisdom and experience, but many of them were probably inspired by the spirit that was within him. And so the prayer is that God would endorse and complete, that is to fulfill, all these plans. And of course that the Lord in essence would fulfill all his petitions or desires. The confidence, again, in the faith of the king, but really in the faith of the real king behind the king David. This is faith in God who can do these things. You see, their confidence is not placed in their human leader. Their confidence is placed in the God who has placed that leader in their presence and can fulfill all these things. But perhaps the most important part of this prayer of confidence is this. May we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God set up our banners. First of all, this confidence is in 
the salvation that the Lord gives the king. This isn't David's salvation. This is God's salvation for David and then by extension to his people. And it says here, we will shout for joy. In other words, they're recognizing God will grant them the victory. Now, does this mean that God won every battle that the Israelites ever fought? Of course not. We know that's not the case. In fact, sometimes the king did not in faith offer sacrifices. Sometimes the king went into battle rejecting God. But this is a reminder that as the people came into battle... They were shouting for joy to the God who will save them. Maybe not that day, although that was their hope and that was their confidence and the strength to fight the battle, but it was to understand that God in the end would save his people. And then, of course, as the people shout with joy, it also says they will raise their standards or their penance. This is Basically, what they would do on the battlefield, you know, those great standards that would go into war. Perhaps you remember some of them in the history of our own country. Maybe a regiment from South Carolina in the Civil War or a a, a display of a flag in the early days of the Revolution. Or perhaps as you go in the military, your battalion or your regiment or your small division going out with a banner before you. And, of course, you see the great pictures in our own country's history where people at great cost, perhaps even to their own lives, sought to keep that banner flying. Here it's not the banner of the United States of America. It's the banner of the kingdom of God. May it go forth with power and strength. What about the battles that we face today? You see, the battles sometimes are not so clear, not so evident, but we face them every day. Sometimes they're just the simple battle of temptation that we face from day to day. They're the simple battles that we face in relationship with others, the battles of doubt and fear, the battles of those who would tell us for one reason or another that we were outside the mainstream or we had no reason to have confidence in God. Well, there was a man here about 20, 25 years ago His name was Mehdi Dibaj. He was an Iranian preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, having become a Presbyterian, in fact. Later on, he became a pastor in one of the Iranian churches. He was arrested and spent nine years in an Iranian prison on the charge of apostasy. After nine years, he was tried before the Islamic courts in December 1993 where he displayed such bravery in giving this defense of the Christian message to the Ayatollahs that even though there was great despair amongst those who would imprison him, he was released from prison in January 1994. But he was so bold in proclaiming the gospel of grace that he was arrested again. On June 24th of 1994, he was returning from a conference to celebrate his daughter's birthday. He never arrived. On July 5th, the authorities found his tortured and murdered body. But he had given his final testament to some friends. And this final testament, even though he had never the ability to give that testament as he sought to fight those battles before his enemies... 
this testament was published in its entirety in the London Times. Here is one excerpt. With all humility, I express my gratitude to the judge of all heaven and earth for this precious opportunity. And with brokenness, I wait upon the Lord to deliver me from this court trial according to his promises. I also beg the honored members of the court present to listen with patience to my defense and with respect for the name of the Lord. I am a Christian, a sinner who believes Jesus has died for my sins on the cross and who by his resurrection and victory over death has made me righteous in the presence of the holy God. The true God speaks about this fact in his holy word, the gospel. Jesus means savior because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus paid the penalty of our sins by his own blood and gave us a new life so that we can live for the glory of God by the help of the Holy Spirit and be like a dam against corruption, be a channel of blessing and healing, and be protected by the love of God. In response to this kindness, he has asked me to deny myself and be his fully surrendered follower and not fear people even if they kill my body. I have been charged with apostasy. The invisible God who knows our hearts has given assurance to us Christians that we are not among the apostates who will perish, but among the believers so we may save our lives. In Islamic law, an apostate is one who does not believe in God, the prophets, or the resurrection of the dead. We Christians believe in all three. They say, you are a Muslim and you have become a Christian. No, for many years I had no religion. After searching and studying, I accepted God's call and I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to receive eternal life. People choose their heritage, but a Christian is chosen by Christ. He says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. From when? Before the foundation of the world. People say, you were a Muslim from your birth. God says, you were a Christian from the beginning. He states that he chose us thousands of years ago, even before the creation of the universe, so that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we may be his. A Christian means one who belongs to Jesus Christ. The eternal God who sees the end from the beginning and who has chosen me to belong to him knew from everlasting whose heart would be drawn to him and who would be willing to sell their faith in eternity for a pot of porridge. I would rather have the whole world against me But know the almighty God is with me. He called an apostate, but I know I have the approval of the God of glory. That's just one part of this man's testimony as he was facing certain death amongst those who rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ with violence. And yet, how could he do this? Because he had access and confidence, access to and confidence in the Lord of the scriptures. You see, like David, he went to this next section. As the people have confidence in the God to give protection and respond to this king, as they have confidence that God will accept the offerings of the man who comes in faith, as they have confidence that if someone is truly by faith leading his people, then God will, in essence, save them. The king says this, Now I know, notice the word changing from we to I, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven 
with the saving might of his right hand. So you see, first of all, he's expressing here, does David and does the leader of God's people, he's expressing an experiential confidence in God's victory. Notice what he says, I know. He doesn't say, I think it might be that God would save me. He says, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. How does he know that? He knows that in part from experience. He's seen God do that time and time again from the time he was a young boy facing the lions with his bare hands. From the time he was fighting Goliath with a mere sling. From the time he was out seeking to escape the wrath of his friend and confidant and mentor, King Saul. From the time he was out there facing the Philistines on the battlefield, he knew that God had his back. And so he says, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He knows that God will answer him from his holy heaven. How does he know this? It's based on the history that God has with his people, not just with David personally, but with all of his people throughout history, from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, from Moses and the people in the wilderness, God time and time again answered the call of his people. And Yahweh, of course, will answer from his holy heaven. And notice how he answers with the saving might of his right hand. The Lord will answer with powerful deeds of his right hand. This idea of the saving might is actually a plural term. It means many times, many things that are powerful and strong and mighty. This confidence in God's victory is the confidence that David has because he knows who God is from the scriptures and from the history he has with his people and with David himself. You see, you know if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you have been for any length of time, you know the times when God answered your prayers. You know the times when God even said no, and for that reason, he did that because he knew better than you did. By experience, you know that God has time and time again, not only for yourself, but for his people, provided for them in their time of need. You see, we have confidence in God's victory because we see the history that God has in the world. But we not only have an experiential confidence, we have a covenantal confidence. Notice what David says next. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, what does he mean by this? I don't think that I could look in the congregation today and say that there is somebody here who's trusting in chariots or horses even, maybe horsepower. You trusted in your cars to get here this morning. I think very few people probably walked. Maybe some did. You trusted in your own resources at some point in your life, your money, your intelligence, your reputation, Something about the things that you have, you have trusted in in the past. That's what David is saying here. Some trust in our own or in human resources. In fact, the kings weren't supposed to do that. If you turn to Deuteronomy 
Then you understand in Deuteronomy 17, you understand that the king was not supposed to collect a bunch of horses. The king was not supposed to accumulate a lot of money. The king was also not supposed to have many wives. He was not supposed to accumulate those three things, but he was supposed to do one thing in particular. He was supposed to write a priest-approved copy of the law by his own hand and read it every single day of his reign. And so David, in light of this scripture, and in light of his purpose as a king, he says this, we have covenantal confidence in God's victory because we don't trust in man. We don't trust in his resources. That is so vital. Now, we all know we need some resources to survive. You don't have any money, how can you provide for your family? If you don't have a place to live, how can you keep from getting cold or hot? If you don't have clothes to wear, how can you keep from being respectable and how can you keep from having the needs that you, or meeting the needs that you have? And yet, what should we come to? I think of the times as a pastor I've come to a situation that seems overwhelming. And yes, it does happen many times. Sometimes there's a daunting project. And it seems as if there's no way that we could get the resources to do what we believe God is calling us to do. Sometimes this daunting project may mean that we think we can't certainly not all agree on a certain way in which to accomplish God's purposes. Sometimes it might not be a daunting project, it might be a disciplinary issue. And it might be an issue that seems overwhelming because the world is in such a tangle and chaos to actually tell someone that their sinning, according to the scriptures, is so difficult to do, it can seem overwhelming. Sometimes it's merely a spiritual battle, merely A battle of your own temptation, a battle uh, because you're facing the pressures all around you, a battle because it seems as if the world is caving in on you. Maybe there are frayed relationships. Maybe it is a battle where you might lose your job if you stand upon righteousness. What do we do in those times? Do we trust in our rights as Americans? Do we trust in our ability to hire a lawyer? Do we trust in the right donors to come and give us the money we think we need? Do we trust in the fact that all of these worldly things of reputation and intelligence and planning and resources, do these things make the kingdom of God? Our hope instead is in the name of the Lord our God. That's what David says. Not on our money, our reputation, our weaponry, our political savvy, our physical strength, our intelligence, or anything else. Why is it that we think we can do things beyond our own imagination, even able to do things that the world says is impossible to do? It's because God grants the victory, not us. In fact, the word here, as we look to trust in the name of Yahweh. This word trust is not the normal word for trust in Hebrew. This word is actually more related to a word that was in verse 3. 
may he remember all your offerings. This is a remembrance. We have a remembrance in the name of our God. We're constantly recalling what the name of God means and what he does for us. And it's that trust in who God is and what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. It's that trust that is different for the man of God than the man of the world. You see, if we were just to look at the world and understand that it's by human resources, human power, human reputation, whatever it is that we can win victories, the church would lose. And again, and again, and again. But if we trust in the name of the Lord our God, the church wins again and again and again. And sometimes it wins in ways that we don't expect. Perhaps it's like Mady Dubage, whose death probably converted more Muslims than his life. May God promote the victory of the martyr's blood seed. He may give us the victory in a way we don't anticipate because someone has been inspired by the Spirit to dream of a project of which to reach the people of God according to the scriptures. And it looks like it's all unable to be done. And it may take a generation or more for it to be accomplished. But if it's God's purpose and God's will, he will have the victory despite all the barriers and opposition. You see, God grants the victory. It's his victory and not ours. It's a renewal to trust not only in Yahweh's name, but in Yahweh's victory. We trust in the name of the Lord our God because they collapse, that is, those who trust in chariots and horses, but we rise and stand upright. His enemies bent the knee. That's the literal sense here. His enemies bent the knee. In other words, this is the the reminder of how on the battlefield, the victor can tell the defeated army to go on their knees before them. And of course, if you knew the Old Testament culture of that day, sometimes they would take the commanders of the army, they would lay them down prostrate on the ground, and they would literally place their foot on the neck of the leader. And it says here, they collapse and fall. That's a reference to what takes place on that battlefield. Those who trust in horses and chariots will be the defeated prostrate enemy before God. But the victor, those who are by faith, worshiping the Lord, trusting in the name of God, and recognizing that he gives the victory, what do they do? They rise And they helped each other. That's what it means when it says they stood upright. They held each other up. What a great picture that is. From from someone who is completely defeated and at the mercy of his enemies to someone who is supported by his brother. What a difference. But it's not their victory. It's not even David's victory. It's God's victory because it's accomplished in the name of the Lord. And so then when we come to the end of this psalm, here is the refrain. If you're British, you love this. God save the king. The Lord 
Yahweh, Jehovah, save the king. There's a call for saving the king. With all this in mind, this is a call to return in faith or to be confident in the name of God for the king to be the leader and the general of that army marching out because he too is worshiping the true God in humility, recognizing that, that David or whoever is the king at that moment is not the one who can claim the victory. He too can only look to the commander-in-chief, the God of the heavens and earth, to get his salvation. And so the call is first to save the king and then the call in confidence that God will answer. You see, it will be just a few weeks, I guess, until King Charles in Britain is crowned the king. We in the United States, we don't understand this whole king thing and this whole monarchy thing. You know, 250 years ago almost, we, we rejected that monarchy and we established our own form of government. And of course, neither form is perfect because they all have to do with sinful human beings. But this call for the British monarch when he's, that crown is placed on his head, this call traditionally is God save the king. These are the same words found here in this passage. But unless that king submits himself in humility and worship to the true God, it doesn't matter what the people cry. You see, this cry was first for David, then his line, those that followed him, Solomon and all the rest. But then in the end, this cry is also given to the eternal seed, to Jesus, the Messiah. And of course, this cry was answered by the God of heaven, the Father, who by the power of the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead and gave him victory over sin and death as Jesus took all the sin of the believers in the history of the world upon himself and he died on that cross, God gave him the victory so that now we have victory over sin and death. Let me ask you, what battle are you going to face this week? Maybe it's the battle of facing unbelieving family members. Maybe it's the battle of the, the pressures of the Christmas season. Maybe it's the battle of the pressures at work or the battles of broken relationships. Maybe it's the battle of temptation. Well, let me tell you, God can provide a way of escape for you. That's his word. Is it a battle of doubt and fear? God can give you the assurance of salvation. John even says, I've written these things so that you may know. Think of those words at the end of John and 1 John. Is your battle a lack of resources or the assailing of your soul by others who trust in man's resources? The Lord will provide for the advance of his kingdom. Whatever the battle is, be reminded this psalm teaches us. By faith, when we come to him in humility and in relationship with him, belonging to Jesus Christ, as Mady Dibaj said of himself, if we come in that understanding, we recognize no victory belongs to ourselves. No victory belongs to our families. No victory belongs to our country or our people. All victories belong to God for now and for all eternity. Glory to God who gives us the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for this psalm that reminds us of the victory that we have. We thank you for the one who perfectly fulfilled what it means to be a man of God in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that our King, the Lord Jesus, truly did submit to you in all things, truly did accomplish all righteousness, and truly did by the power of you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, accomplish our salvation and the victory over death and sin. Lord, help us in our weakness. Help us despite the resources that we think are so powerful. Help us not to trust in them, but to trust in you. In the name of Jesus Christ, by whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. In Jesus' name.